And we are in a series. <laughs> it's funny to say that after we heard the joke and we're making light of it. But we are in a series and we've been dealing with stuff that gets in the way of us progressing and of us making progress in our walk with Christ. And uh, we've been saying this over and over and over again. In Christ, nothing should stop us in our growth to know God better and trust him more. It's time to get over the stuff that tries to hold us back. We've been talking about things like uh, getting over ourselves. We've been talking about things like getting over other people. We've talked about getting over uh, disappointment and the opinions of others. And one thing we're going to talk about today, because I love it, as soon as the pastor leaves, I get to talk about sin. Oh, lucky me. Really? I get No. In all seriousness, it was my idea, and I've been doing a lot of, uh, a lot of soul searching. I've been doing a lot of reading and, uh, on this subject, especially when it, how, how it comes and deals with legalism and, and those things that we try to, that we try to avoid. Uh, we're, we're very, very much into the gospel of grace in this church. We believe it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's grace of God, nothing else. So um, this is our other tagline we've been using that says, Being a, devoter, a devoted follower of Christ means not letting anything stop us from enjoying the full life that Jesus offers. Not even sin. And this is our verse that we've been saying. And this is our fifth week to say it. So Romans says this. I need it on the screen though. There it goes. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life. There you go. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love that is it, that from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing, amazing thing. You know, the, I was reading lately, recently about a guy named Charles Lindbergh. Y'all know who Charles, Charles Lindbergh was? He's the guy who made the first transatlantic flight, okay? And then what I read about this, about him was this. When he, when he decided to do that flight, and he had to take a lot of things into account. This is the first time this was being done, and he's looking at his aircraft, and lots of things affect how an airplane flies and how long an airplane flies. And, and one of the key variables in that thing is weight. And so what he had to do was remove every single thing off that aircraft that was not necessary. If it didn't immediately or, or directly contribute to the mission of that flight, he removed it. He didn't add things. He cut things out. There's parts of the fuselage he cut off. I heard it even said that he had to look through a periscope to see. Couldn't even have any visibility. Matter of fact, he didn't even play, uh, paint most of the plane because even the paint would have added some unnecessary weight. Look at what Hebrews 12.1 tells us. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. You guys, we are doing our own version of the transatlantic flight, all right? And anything that's not directly contributing to the mission has got to be jettisoned. We've got to kick it aside because it's going to hold us down, hold us back. And eventually, sometimes, even with, like in the case of sin, it's going to trip us up. You know, sin might be the most often discussed topic in the Bible. I did a real quick, real quick search of the word. And over 450 times in the New Testament alone, you'll find the word sin. And compared to... Even the word love, which only appears 400 times in the New Testament. That's amazing to me that the New Testament authors spent that much time talking about this topic. Tells me it's important. It's something that we've got to deal with. But you know what? There's an awful lot of confusion, I think, too. And I think, quite frankly, there's a lot of bad teaching. And I think there's a lot of agenda-driven theology behind this idea. And to illustrate how much confusion there seems to be out there about this thing, I sent a couple of our intrepid youngsters out to uh, various places around San Angelo with a video camera and a microphone, and I had them interview some folks and ask them a few questions, and I want to show you what they came up with. 
Would you identify yourself as a Christian? Definitely. No. Okay. I'm uh, Jewish. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, no. I don't know. Would you say that you're religious or spiritual? Uh, religious. Spiritual. Uh, probably spiritual. Yes. Do you consider yourself to be a sinner, or would you consider yourself that you're, like, righteous and good? Uh, by all means, I want to say that I'm perfect, so, I mean, right in the middle. Um, good, good. Uh, I hate, uh, everybody's a sinner, I think, you know, when it comes to that, but, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I guess there's no fine line between the two of them, because everyone sins, but sometimes we have to sin in a righteous way. I'm good. What comes to your mind when I say the word sin? Oh, all kinds of bad things. Hmm. <laughs> you okay. Know, you know, adultery, I guess. Uh, you know, not being faithful, those type of things. Oh, uh, negativity. Uh, lying, stealing, shooting people, and robbing old women. Um, stealing, uh, bad, uh, I don't know, really. Something um, you shouldn't be doing. Pretty much. Uh, how many sins do you think it takes to become a sinner? That's a tough question. Really, uh, you know, it, it, to look at it once, really. You know, okay. You know. One. One. Uh, it takes one. One. Uh, is it possible to become a non-sinner? Uh, I would say yeah. If, I mean, you would go down the path of being saved, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, I think so. You know, it all depends on the individual. You know. Not really. I mean, even Christians mess up sometimes. Yes. No, it's not as bad. It's only as you suspect. Um, I don't think that's possible. Um, I mean, every day that we go, I mean, we have our challenges. I know a person can be weak, you know, they're going to come to that point where they're, gonna, they're weak and, and I definitely believe um, that, it, that sin will be there, but I definitely think that they will repent and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to take it away from them. I believe that you could have forgiveness, but you're a sinner, one way or another. So as you can tell, I mean, just from the video, right, there's a lot of different opinions, right? I mean, are you a sinner or are you not a sinner? How many sins does it take? I mean, we got all these different answers, even from people who claim to be Christians. They even contradict to themselves sometimes. I'm not a sinner, but it takes one sin. I don't, we, we, could go, we could go into that. But the point of that thing is that there's a lot of confusion. And there's a lot, even amongst believers, there's a lot of confusion about what this thing is about. And so what we have to do first and foremost, I believe, and by the way, if you've got your, uh, your version going or you've got your, your notes in your bulletin, this would be a good time to pull those things out. There's going to be some things you can fill in. But um, at times it's easier to define what something is by defining first what it's not. So let me, let me do that first. Okay, the first thing I want to say is this. The sin is not something fun that God's trying to keep from us. It's something destructive he's trying to keep us from. You know, look at uh, Galatians uh, 5, 19 through 21, and I'll read quickly through this. But it says, when you follow the desires of the sinful nature, the results are very clear. 
sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a laundry list of things in there, and most of them aren't cool. It's not like, oh man, God won't let me have that. These are things that are destructive. Sin is not a bunch of fun stuff that a mean and stern God does just not want you to have. These are things that will destroy your life. I mean, true, sin has an attractive quality. Otherwise, we wouldn't struggle with it at all. But at the end of the day, a loving father won't let his kid play in the street. Not because playing in the street is so fun and because we just don't want him to enjoy it. No, we're trying to keep him from getting clobbered. Your loving father wants you to know that sin always destroys. Sin always isolates. Sin always eventually kills. So why would he want you to have that stuff? Romans 5.12 says it like this. It says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So that means that's the end result, guys. So this is not something God's trying to keep from us. He's trying to keep us away from it. But the second thing is this. And this, is, this trips people up an awful lot. Especially after you read a verse like Galatians 5.19 where it talks about all these things. But you know what? Sin is not primarily about behavior. It's ultimately a heart issue. I'll say that again. Sin is not primarily a behavior. It's, a, it's, it's ultimately a heart issue. I mean, behaviors are symptoms, and, and sin is the underlying disease. So when we focus only on the behavior, it's like going to the doctor and saying, Hey, doc, I've got a, a cough and a fever and a chills. And, and the doctor says, Oh, man, you know what you've got? You've got a cough and a fever and chills. And you go, Duh! But what's causing the problem? We need to know what the underlying issue is. I had a, a discussion with one of my kids who will remain nameless, okay? And we were discussing all of the ways in which I was expecting this child to contribute more to the household. Man, I need you to do the things I've asked you to do. Not because I need you to, to impress me. Not because if you do those things, I'll love you more. But because you're part of this family. And this is what we do as a part of the family. And so, I, man, I thought I made a brilliant case. I laid this thing out. You know, I had theological points. It went on for about an hour and 45 minutes. It was fantastic. I led her down the Roman road. She got saved. And at the end of the whole thing, I said, do you get what I'm saying, child? And the child said, yes, I should do the dishes. <sighs> no! No, I want you to... I felt like that. There's that scene in that stinking chick flick movie. I can't remember what it is, but it's just where she says to the guy, I want you to want to do the dishes. Really? Yeah, but that's what God wants. God wants us to want to do the dishes. This is a heart issue. Jesus talked about this a lot. And in his, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, if you look at uh, Matthew 5, 21 through 22, listen, there was an awful lot of people living in Jesus' day who were observing the law, who were doing a lot of good stuff. And Jesus ripped them a new one every chance he got because they missed it every single time. But look what he says in Matthew 5, 21. He says, you have heard our ancestors were told, but you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. How many of you guys killed somebody this morning on the way to church? Called them an idiot. Oh, you killed them! That's, that's rough. Oh, oh, man. And then it goes on. He, he goes on in five, uh, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her. Where? In her heart. In his heart. Man, this is a heart issue, guys. Over and over and over again, Jesus tells us we're dealing with issues of the heart. You know, most of us can refrain from killing one another. A very small percentage of us will, will ever go to jail for murder. But you know what? If, if 
hating them or being angry with them or calling them an idiot is the equivalent of murder, then I'm standing in a room full of serial killers. And quite frankly, I'm getting a little scared. Y'all are freaking me out. You know, when we asked the people in our interviews what they thought of when they heard the word sin, we always got those things, right? Those lying, killing, stealing, robbing old women, which I thought was particularly funny. Um, really, it's a very specific sin. I don't think that one's in the Bible. But, but you know what? The thing is, the laws of Moses were pretty stinking... Okay, they were okay at regulating behavior. They were okay. They really weren't even that good at that, to be honest with you. But they were lousy at dealing with the hard issues. There were tons of people, like I said, who were living good lives, who had, man, they could check the list. And they were, I did this, I did this, I did this. And look what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23, verse 27. These are the guys, by the way, who are the chief priests of the temple. These are the ones who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They got their stuff together. But look at this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. These are the people that Jesus talked about when he said that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Man, they're, they're paying lip service to the gospel, but they're missing the point on a daily, minute-by-minute base, basis. Sin is a heart issue, guys, and, it, and only focusing on the outward is like taking Benadryl for pneumonia. You know, it's like taking an aspirin for cancer. Right, we, might, we might temporarily take care of some of the symptoms. We might bring the fever down. We might get rid of the cough. But you know what? Meantime, the cancer is killing you. The pneumonia is drowning you. And the disease runs rampant. If we don't deal with the primary cause, then we haven't done anything. We've just dealt with the symptoms. But you know what? What we need and what Jesus offers us is a change from the inside out. We get a heart transplant when we come into Christ. And that alleviates the issue of sin. In dealing with sin, though, we also have to deal with this idea, of, this idea of identity. This is an important thing. Why? Because we will ultimately behave like who we truly believe we are. We're going to be that thing that we think we are, whether, whether good or bad, guys. That's the, that's the, the psychologists will call this a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I think I am this thing, I'm going to act like this thing. And we asked this question of a lot of our people in the interviews. You all saw that, right? We said, would you consider yourself to be a sinner or would you consider yourself to be good or righteous? And we got a varying list of answers. But you know what? The other thing we asked them about was that how many sins they thought it took to become a sinner. And that leads me to this point about sin. Ready? About your identity, okay? So I put this on the screen. It says this, birth and not behavior determines identity. Who you are and not what you do is what determines your identity. So we asked these people what they thought. And by and large, when, they, when he asked them, you know, how many sins it took, I got the same answer from every single one, didn't I? I got one, 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 because that seems to be the logical choice. But the problem with that line of thought is that they're assuming that we do in order to be. And they're assuming that being precedes doing, and that, and that ultimately we're sinners or saints based on our actions and our merit. And the problem with that line of thought is it's not what the Bible teaches us. It's not what the Bible tells us. Look at Romans 5.12. It says, when Adam sinned, Adam, not you, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone because everyone sinned. Look at this. Sin was introduced through one man. But it also goes on to say this. Look at this, Romans 5.19. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but, it, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. And that's good news, you guys. Amen? You see, we're not sinners or saints based on what we do. In all fairness, 
To be technically accurate, when we asked the people how many sins it took them to become a sinner, and they said one, they are technically right, okay? The problem is it wasn't their sin. It was Adam's sin. So guess what? By one act of righteousness, they'll be made right. But it won't be their act of righteousness. It'll be Jesus's. And guess what? It's already been done. He did it when he died on the cross to take the place for you and for me. When he died on the cross to take our sin, he dealt with that issue. Amen? Amen. The Bible teaches this. By birth, I was a sinner, but by my rebirth in Christ, I am a saint. That's something you guys have got to get in your hearts, y'all. I'm so tired of hearing Christians run around telling that they're just sinners saved by grace. No, you are not. You are a new creation. Look what the Bible says about you. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Man, I love that. That's good. Romans 5.8 goes on to say this, but God demonstrate his own love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I, I chose that verse for one reason and one reason only. It's because Paul's writing a letter to a Christian church. And he says, when you were sinners. He's referring to them in the past tense as sinners. Guess what? They're not now. They're not sinners, guys. They were. Christ died for them when they were still. But guess what? They're not anymore. And the truth is that if you're in Christ, you're not a sinner. And committing a sin doesn't make you a sinner any more than me doing an occasional sit-up makes me an athlete. Which, by the way... I don't do either of those things, and I'm not, okay? But, but we have this idea, and there's a, a bunch of people running around who will, who will get you, you know, how many lies have you told? And you say one, they go, well, you're a liar. Seriously? Well, I, you know, I, I, I gave a dollar to a homeless guy. I'm generous. Not necessarily. One act of one or the other does not make you that thing, right? It's, it's who you are on the inside that starts to bleed out of you. And you can't help but be that way because it's who you are. And we put behavior that way in front. Man, we just mess things all the way up. So, all that sounds really good, right? You're a new person. You're a new creation. The old stuff has passed away. So why do we still struggle with sin? I mean, that's a legitimate question. That's a question I would ask. And I got a few ideas on the subject, okay? First of all, this. Although our old nature is dead, our flesh is very much alive. Let me say that again. Although our old nature, what the Bible sometimes calls our, our old man, is dead, our flesh is still alive. I mean, your flesh is a wholly different thing from your spirit. You know that, right? When you were born again, your spiritual DNA was rewritten. Your destiny was changed. Your future was instantly transformed. You became a new person. Your flesh, on the other hand, did not get that message right off the bat. And it can be a source of some conflict for a believer. And we still have this lifetime of habits and hang-ups and thought patterns and, and programming that still kind of pops up at from time to time and messes with us. But what you guys have to get really clear is this is not your old man coming back from the dead to mess with you. There are no zombies for real, y'all. This is not the weekend at Bernie's, you know, where the guy is just dead and he's being propped up. And this is not your old sin nature climbing on your back. It is just this thing that Paul refers to as the flesh. It's this old, leftover, residual stuff that we've got to deal with. Look at this. Uh, Romans 6.6 6 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Was crucified equals is dead. It's a past tense and a present tense, right? It was crucified. It is no longer living. Romans 12, 2, the first part of that says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, I picked that verse because, listen, when it talks about renewing, it tells me that this is a process. 
we, maybe our, our old self was done away with. We have a new identity in Christ, but we still have this process of going through. In theological terms, we, we, we talk about this. There's two ways of looking at salvation, right? One would be what we call justification, which is when we are saved. We are made right. That, that whole shifting from darkness to light, from death to life thing, it takes place instantly. However, there's also a sanctification process, which the Bible refers to as a purification. It's our, it's our process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus as time goes on. I've heard it said like this before. Salvation happens once, but not all at once. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with other people around you, more importantly. And let them transform at the pace that the Holy Spirit would bring them along. We've got to be patient with one another. Another problem is this, is that we humans are suckers. We are suckers for religion. Man, we love it. We love it. You hear us say all the time that we're not, a, we're not about religion. It's almost become cliche to hear people say this, but man, it is so true. Because you know what the problem with religion is? It loves to label stuff. And the thing it's really good at labeling, by the way, is sin. Man, we label everything sin. Man, by the time it's done with you, every random thought, every misdeed, every mistake of error or action, everything, every single thing you don't like or someone else doesn't like, we've labeled as sin. Man, it's no wonder people don't think they can become non-sinners. We've, man, we've named everything sin. We're busy naming stuff that is sin that isn't necessarily sin and messing around with people's heads, okay? But you know what? It's not possible to live that way. Jesus did not come to start a religion, you guys. He came to restore a relationship. And as a matter of fact, if you look through the scriptures, his primary purpose in coming was not necessarily to deal with sin. His primary purpose in coming was to restore a relationship with us. And the only way that that was going to be restored was to deal with the sin issue. Well, guess what? That means then the dealing with the sin issue was a byproduct of what he really, really wanted, which was to know you better, to have a right relationship with you. If that's what it takes to get that done, then I'll do that thing. But that does not necessarily make that my primary purpose in coming. Does that make sense? He came because he loves you so much that he wants to fulfill that purpose where he actually gets to know you and, and you get to know him. But that has to happen as long as, with the sin issue being reserved. This religion thing has a fairly negative connotation. Even in the word itself, if you look at the Latin roots of that word, the first part of that word, re, re, comes from the Latin to do again. And then that second part comes from the Latin ligare, which is where we get words like ligament. And it really means to connect or to bind. And so one possible translation that I've heard over the years is that religion literally means a return to bondage. Why would we go back? Jesus came specifically to rip that stuff away. And it wasn't long after he was gone, we started putting it back. If you look out through human history, it's like we seem to prefer bondage to freedom. Especially when that freedom is somewhat unsafe or uncomfortable or unpredictable. And it wasn't long after the Israelites left Egypt that they were waxing poetic about Egypt, was it? Oh man, at least we had food there. You were slaves. Yeah, but I had a comfy bed. You were property. Yeah, but... You know, I, I could predict what was going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, man is going to fall from the sky, fool. What do you mean? You want to go back? God will sustain you. But it's scary, you know. It wasn't long after Jesus came and actually completely changed our, the dynamic of our relationship with him that people started putting those institutions back into place. Started putting that wall back up. We ripped the veil, and as soon as Jesus was gone from the earth, we started stitching it back up. Well, let's just put this back in place. This was safer this way. Man... We just are suckers for it. The attraction of religion, though, is it gives the illusion of control. I mean, it provides us with handy checklists and things we can, oh, I did this and I did this. I've, I've heard it said before that religion is a crutch. 
And the truth is, um, actually, I take that back. I've heard it said that Jesus is a crutch. Um, the truth is that religion's the crutch. And the reason I say that is because of this. It gives you an illusion of stability. It gives you an illusion of assistance. However, it still takes all of your own strength to make it happen. You still have to lean on it, and you still have to move your legs and move it. This is you. And by the way, if anybody wants to trip somebody up using crutches, just go kick one out from under and see what happens. There's no stability in crutches, really. I get the enemy can come along and go, whoop, and you're toast. Jesus, however, is way more than a crutch. I like to call Jesus my stretcher. Because, man, if it wasn't for him, I couldn't even limp into heaven. I couldn't even crawl on my hands and knees into heaven. He better carry me there or I'm not going to make it at all. Y'all, we don't need a crutch. We need a stretcher. Amen? Amen. The thing is this. Religion gives us checklists. It gives us... But also, it makes us, it makes us compare one another. It makes us deal with this, this issue. Well, I'm better than you. You're better than me. We have to be patient with one another. The Holy Spirit deals with us each on an individual basis. Y'all believe that? He can tell me things that he's not necessarily telling you. And there are things in my life that as I've grown and matured in Christ, he's, he's called me out on, and some things he's been okay with. And as I go, he brings me to what the Bible calls from glory to glory. I go from one thing to the next, and I deal with the things one at a time. So we've got to be wary of religion. We've got to be wary of checklists and things that, that, that confine and restrain the Holy Spirit. I don't need a list of do's and don'ts to live my life as a Christian. I need one thing and one thing only. I need the Holy Spirit. And I need to learn, just as I need to learn, hear his voice tell me what I can and can't do. You know what? The rest doesn't matter to me. The Holy Spirit will tell me. Amen? The last thing I want to tell you about the sin struggle is that we cannot discount this fact. Is we have a very real and a very determined enemy. You do. I mean, we, 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 sometimes we like to put more stuff on him than he's actually capable of. But we can't discount him either. Look what, uh, look what he's, uh, 1 Peter 5 says about him. He says, stay alert. Be watch, or I'm sorry, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Our enemy's got these tried and true tactics. He knows how to tempt or distract us. Um, for the longest time, y'all struggled with these thoughts that were, were not good. And I've quite frankly beat myself up over this. I mean, if I'm a saved, sanctified saint, son of God, all this stuff, why do I think those things? And it finally occurred to me, man, those aren't your thoughts. Duh! I have an enemy who sometimes flings stuff at me. The sin is not the thought, because it might not even be your thought. But you know what? If we act, if we dwell, if we concentrate on those things, well, then we participate in that thing. The Bible tells us we're to hold those things captive. Guess what? There's a lot of times those are not coming from within. They're coming from without, and they're attacks from the enemy. Amen? Lots of people have this impression, by the way, that the devil is the opposite of God, and that he's just the same as God, but bad. No. Guys, your enemy is not that. God is eternal. Your enemy, the devil, was created. He had a beginning and he'll have an end. Amen? He is not creative. He's only destructive. The only one who ever created anything original ever, ever, ever was God. The only thing the devil can do is come along and mess with it. So you have this foe who's predictable, who is limited, but you know what? He's still dangerous. Sometimes the most dangerous enemy is the defeated enemy who, in his last breath, will try and trip you up. So we have to be on alert, and we have to be careful. But you know what? We have read the end of the book, and we know how it ends. So I ain't worried. Amen? All right. 
So how are we going to do this then? I've given you all these things that trip us up. We need to have some practical things. What are we going to do to actually get over sin? And I've got a couple points, and so we'll, we'll, we'll end with these things right here, okay? The first thing I want to tell you is this. We have got to remain focused on Jesus. You've got to remain focused on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. I read that first part of that scripture, right? That we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, etc., etc. Run with endurance the race. Look at verse 2, though. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We do it by keeping our eyes on Jesus. When we keep our eyes on him, we don't become distracted by circumstances or problems. And sin can't trip us up if we have our eyes on Jesus. The story of Peter walking on the water is a good one. Matthew 14, 28 through 30. And look, it says that Peter suddenly bold said, Master, if it's really you, Call me to come to you on the water. And he said, come ahead. So jumping out of the boat, Peter walked on the water to Jesus. But when he looked down at the waves churning beneath his feet, he lost his nerve and started to sink. And he cried, Master, save me. And when we focus on our circumstances, we elevate them above Jesus. And when we focus on sin, we do the same thing with sin. We focus and elevate sin above Jesus. We've got to not be sin conscious, guys. We've got to be Jesus conscious. I mean, if all we ever did was go out into our yards or our gardens and pull weeds and never put anything good in the soil, what do you think is going to happen? The weeds come back. The weeds come back. I learned this lesson a long time ago when my, when my, my wife and I had a, had, a, had a lawn that was terrible and we just decided to water the heck out of it and put some stuff in it. And all of a sudden, man, the weeds went bye-bye because there was all this good stuff in the soil choking out the bad stuff. If all we ever do is focus on the bad stuff and we think it's our responsibility to keep pulling it and pulling it and pulling it and pulling it and we don't ever put anything good in its place and the weeds just keep coming back and coming back. We have to fully stay focused on Jesus. Next thing we need to do is this, is we need to fully rely on Him. We've got to rely on Him. Any change that occurs in us is only through Jesus. When we attempt to self-improve, we short-circuit God's plan for us. And the law was all about our ability to, to live up to a standard. But guess what? Grace is all about Jesus' ability to live up to that standard. We get in on the deal because of what he already did. And that's, man, I don't know about you, but that's a good deal. I wouldn't trade places, by the way, with an Old Testament believer for nothing. My deal is so much better. My deal is so much better than anything they ever had. Oh, man. Seriously? I get in on this because of what Jesus did? Man, that's amazing. That's the grace of God, and it is so stinking cool. The problem, though, is that we let ourselves get in the way. And look at what Paul wrote to the early church in Galatia. This is a long one, and I, I, don't, I don't use the message version often a lot, but every once in a while the message version nails it. And this is one that just kind of nails it. All right? Galatians 3, 1 through 4. Look what he says to him. He says, you crazy Galatians! Did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what has begun by God. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? Did you get through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not a, it's not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. In the church in Galatia, we had an issue with religion coming back into the deal. And 
Paul, being frustrated with them, that said, listen, this was, not, this was never the deal. This was never the thing where you were supposed to start this in the spirit and then finish in the flesh. This is not how it's supposed to go. And I love how he calls them crazy. Are you crazy? Boy, the, 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 the definition of crazy I've always heard is doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, this is Paul saying, you've tried this before. We've done this before. Remember how this ended? It didn't end well. Stop. Do something different. You know, the flesh can take on a lot of forms. And a lot of times we, we have that word flesh hooked up with uh, very negative stuff. You know, we hook it up with words like lust. And it's like the lust of the flesh, right? We've got to worry about the lust of the flesh. But you know what? The, lu- the flesh can also be good things, seemingly good things. Paul talked about all the things that he accomplished for God when he was a Pharisee. And they were all pretty good things. But the deal was he accomplished them all in the flesh. He didn't attribute any of them to, to God. So we can do good things in the flesh. We can go to church in the flesh. And we can help our neighbor in the flesh. I could uh, give money in the flesh. And in the end of the day, it's just going to be what Paul said it all was. He called it all dung. Everything that was done outside of Jesus was just wasteful. It was just waste. We're not called to live a life independent from God, you guys. We're called to be dependent fully on him who created us and is perfecting us. If we could do it on our own, we wouldn't need him, right? And then we could take all the credit and we could be the ones in charge of our destiny. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Second thing is we have to remember who we are. Or this is the third thing. Let's just go with next. I'll stay out of trouble that way. The next thing is that we have to remember who we are. We talked about this, right? How we, how we see ourselves is ultimately going to determine how we behave. If we believe we're sinners, is it any wonder we sin? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? But God's opinion of you does not change. He loved you when he made you. He loves you when you mess up. He loves you when you're good. He loved you when you cried out to him. He loved you when he restored you. And he loves you even when you don't act like the son of the most high God that you are. He loves you. And we've got to get over this idea that his opinion somehow changes based on our behavior. God's Conviction, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not an angry dad wagging his finger in your face saying, you dirty, rotten scumbag. It is, the, it is the loving, gentle action of a father who says, man, that's not you. Why are you acting like this? This isn't who you are. A preacher told me one time that the difference between the devil and God was that the devil will catch you at your worst and say, see, ah, I knew it. That's you. Knew who you were all along. And Jesus will catch you at your best and say, see, ah, that's who you are. That's, the, that, that's my kid. And that other stuff's not you. Paul even went so far as to say that when he continued to sin, it wasn't even sin, any, it wasn't even him anymore. It was sin living in him. You guys are a new creation if you're in Christ. That's not your identity anymore. You're not a sinner. You are a saint of God. Amen? That's good news. I don't know about you, but when we know these things about ourselves and the world tells us we'll never win, what do we get to say? We are more than conquerors. Amen? When the world tells us that it's going to chew us up and spit us out, The Bible tells me that no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. And when the world tells me that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, the word tells me that I'm a new creation, that I bear the image of Almighty God, and that in the words of 1 Peter 2, 9, I'm a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and I can declare the praises of him who called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Amen? That is good news. Man, y'all are new creations. The last thing, I'm going to close with this. The last thing that you can do is you can fully rest. You can rest in the completed work of the cross. 
You can rest. Does God really want you to have rest? I believe so. Look at this. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 says this. Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Listen, guys. If anybody's putting something on you that is heavy or hard to carry, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what Jesus said his gospel was. He said it's easy. It's, and I don't, mean that it's, that it's, I don't mean that it's easy to carry out. I mean that it's simple. It's not a bunch of complicated rules. He didn't come to put more stuff on us. You know that in the Old Testament there were 600 plus commandments. There weren't just the 10 that were etched in stone. There were hundreds upon hundreds of things that people had to remember. That's complicated. Even if they weren't difficult to accomplish, it's impossible to remember. You couldn't even hardly breathe without sinning. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm going to take all that stuff off of you. And let me replace it with a couple of easy, simple things. Jesus' wish for us is that we would rest, that we would find in him rest for our hearts. He offers us that. The world and religion offer us anxiety, a constant wondering if we're measuring up. Um, a laundry list of rules and regulations and do's and don'ts and a burden that is quite frankly impossible to bear. But is that work really completed? I said you could, work, you could rest in the completed work of the cross. And I tell you what, the most powerful words that Jesus ever spoke, in my opinion, were when he was hanging on the cross. In John 19.30, says when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. Man, three words, four syllables, maybe five if you stretch them out. It is finished. Y'all put that punctuation on it. It's finished. It is done. Those are the mo- those little three words changed everything. Everything that came before was gone. And everything that would come was new. And it took three words as Jesus said, Father, the mission you gave me to accomplish, I just did it. It's done. It's finished. It's over. Man, that is so cool. Contrary to popular tradition, though, um, never mind. I just skipped over something. But look at what um, Jesus accomplished, right? He did this thing. He said it's finished. I said you can rest in the completed work of the cross. And those words changed everything. But you know what? He came to give us life. And so what had to happen before we could have life? What was getting in the way of us having a good life with Jesus? Before, it was sin. I'm going to take it back to the very, very beginning. Jesus came so that he could restore the relationship we had with him. And he had to do that, first and foremost, by eradicating the sin in our lives. Way back in Romans, we learned that the wages of sin is death. And the Bible tells us over and over and over that we're dead in our sins, that we're dead in our transgressions. So if one of Jesus' primary reasons was to give us life, an abundant life at that, he had to deal with that issue first. Amen? But when Jesus shouted out, it is finished, three words. Now, as a matter of fact, in Aramaic, it's only one word, which I will not try to pronounce because it's hard to pronounce but he said one word he said this he said it's done and it carries the added meaning of a successful completion it's the mission he was assigned to was done so when we look backwards at the work of the cross we can see that because of jesus we can rest in what he's done for us amen we are free to enjoy all the benefits of sonship we're no longer slaves to sin we are new creations we know who we are because the Bible tells us the sin issue has been resolved. It's done. Jesus took that away for us. Our job is to step in and live in the reality of that truth. Amen? All right. If you're sitting here today, you know what? And 
And you cannot honestly say that you can rest in the completed work of the cross. Man, the first step you need to do is make that step into Jesus Christ. So if the band would do me a favor, that you guys would come. And I want to just create a, a quiet moment. And I want to ask you, what's standing in the way this morning? If you are... If you're not in Christ, then I know what's standing in the way. It's that sin issue that has to be dealt with. But I'm not here to beat you up. We're not here to mess with you. We're just here to tell you that Jesus Christ wants a relationship with you this morning. And he's here to handle that issue for you. So, as these guys get prepared, if there's anyone here this morning who needs to make that profession of faith, if you need to make that step, just do me a favor. Raise your hand. Make eye contact with me. Uh, do something and we will and we can take that step together amen 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 secondary I want to ask you too that if you are a believer and there's a certain issue you've been dealing with this morning I want to give you an opportunity to pray this morning that you could have that burden lifted from you amen I mean Jesus came, we said already, to give us life and give us life to the full. He said, come to me if you're heavy and you're, and you're burdened and I'll give you rest. So we need rest this morning. And if you're someone this morning who needs rest, just, just lift up your hand. I'd like to pray for you. This, we can pray a prayer together. Amen. That's good. That's good. Well, let's, let's pray this together then. If you guys just repeat after me, we'll pray all at once. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, I ask you right now for the rest that comes only in knowing you. Father, I give myself to you. I give my burdens to you. And I thank you for helping me live every single day for you. In Jesus' name, amen.